0: You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community.
1: listeners both new and returning, and welcome to Locally Sourced Science. I'm Cecil barnett Ithaca's summer continues with its blue skies, warm days, and surprise thunderstorms, so probably best to bring both an umbrella and sunscreen, because you'll never know how it's going to out today. Celebrating National Pollinator Week, which was originally started 12 years ago, LSS talks to researchers who investigate pollinators and the plants they interact with to better understand this key stage of the plant life cycle. Pollinators are often keystone species, meaning that they become a critical part of the ecosystem and include over 200,000 species. It might surprise you that bees are not the only pollinating insect, but also includes wasps, ants, butterflies, moths, flies and beetles. However, even on top of this, birds, bats and other small mammals also interact with flowers and end up being pollinators too. This huge variety is very important for about 75% of flowering plant species, as they need the aid of another organism to spread heavy pollen grains that normally wouldn't be able to travel very far. To learn more, Patricia Waldron spoke to Dr. Robin Radcliffe of Cornell University, a Senior Lecturer in Wildlife and Conservation Medicine.
2: Hello, this is Patricia Waldron with Locally Sourced Science. In honor of Pollinator Week, I'm talking with Dr. Robin Radcliffe, a Senior Lecturer in Wildlife and Conservation Medicine at Cornell University. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
2: Now, you normally work with much larger animals like giraffes and buffalo and rhinoceroses, but you also teach a honeybee health course for Cornell veterinary students. How did you first get interested in working with bees?
0: Um, Well, actually, my interest in in honeybees started as a boy. I was um, lucky enough to have a grandfather who took me bee hunting. And for your listeners who don't know what bee hunting is, it's basically following uh, honeybees that you trap on flowers back to their, their home, usually in a bee tree. So we, we did that on our farm in Wisconsin, and we were able to find some wild colonies of honeybees.
2: Oh, wow. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Do you currently keep your own hives?
0: Um, yep. I have two hives right now, and um, I'm really interested in the, the way wild bees manage health in the, at the level of the colony having honeybees helps me um, better understand their biology and behavior and and some of the health concerns that they're facing today.
2: So how did veterinarians get into the business of helping bees?
0: Well, in North America, they are required now by law to work with beekeepers whenever uh, antibiotics are prescribed. And that's part of... Uh, New regulation that not just includes honeybees but all livestock. And the, the focus of this is to prevent um, overuse or misuse of antibiotics and, particularly, antibiotic resistance developing. And so, honeybees are actually considered livestock, and uh, even though they have six legs and, uh, and uh, exoskeleton instead of uh, a backbone, like most of our patients. But interestingly, veterinary medicine in other parts of the world have included bee health as part of their curriculum for a long time, especially in South America and also in Europe. So North America comes to this kind of late in the game.
2: So now that we're catching up, uh, what kind of services can veterinarians offer to beekeepers?
0: The obvious one is when beekeepers call and they want to treat a colony. Usually um, they're treating for fowl brood. There's two kinds of fowl brood, American fowl brood and European fowl brood. And it's a bacterial pathogen that infects the, the brood or the growing larvae of the honeybees. And it's particularly troublesome, especially American fowl because it produces spores, which are really long lived in the environment. They can live 70 to 100 years. Basically, it's required if you have American fowl to contact the state apiarist, and they will come out and supervise uh, destruction of your hive. And they literally dig a hole, burn it, and bury it because of these long lived spores but i think the value of a veterinarian to beekeepers is much more than as a prescriber of medicines or as a pharmacist because beekeepers have been using antibiotics on their own for a long time and they probably know better than most veterinarians what to look for and the signs of foul brood and i think the real value for veterinarians is um, the problem-solving approach that they bring to to health and in, in particular preventative health Um, So we can diagnose and treat, but I think preventative health is something that honeybees increasingly need because one of the lessons that we've learned in the last decade is that these increasingly common episodes of colony collapse or winter losses of honeybees, which are um, at at record levels now, more than 50% of colonies are not surviving the winter. They they seem to be multifactorial. There's many different causes that are, are leading to these honeybee declines. Some of them are pathogens, some of them are nutrition, some of them are perhaps pesticide related. So having a problem solving approach where you can be one part of a team together with the beekeeper, I think is a really good thing. And it's gonna take some time to develop those relationships, but I think in the long run, honeybees and honey, the health of honeybees will be benefited by having this relationship.
2: So you almost have to be like bee detectives to figure out what's affecting the hive.
0: I like that. I think that's a good analogy.
2: How do your students feel about this new
0: animal they're working with? Um, they love it. Our students really love it. They, uh, they can't get enough. We're lucky to have the Cornell Master Beekeeping Program here at Cornell, and that was put together by Emma Mullen at the Dice Lab, and it's a wonderful uh, online certification program. And so our veterinary students take parts of the Cornell Master Beekeeping Program as an online course first. And then we have uh, like a week long workshop where the students get out and work with the bees. Um, we have two different bee labs here at Cornell, the Dice Lab, and then also Liddell where Dr. Tom Seeley does his amazing behavioral studies. So we're very well positioned here at Cornell to, um, to train students. And uh, I not only train veterinary students, but also undergraduates. So they get exposed at different levels in their education to honeybees and honeybee health.
2: How is working with bees different from working with other types of livestock on farms?
0: Um, that's, a, that's a great great question. Um, I think one of the things that I like most about working with honeybees is that you can't just be knowledgeable about health and veterinary medicine. You have to have knowledge of other disciplines. So you need to, you should, you should know about ecology and biology, and particularly as it relates to the honeybee. I think one of the biggest things that I've recognized in, in my studies of honeybee health is that the problems that we're seeing in managed honeybees is very different than um, what we're seeing in the wild. So most of the problems that managed honeybees have, in other words, the honeybees that are kept in, in hives by both backyard beekeepers and commercial beekeepers, they're problems of management. One of the things that Dr. Seely has spent the last part of his career studying is the health, um, the health of wild honeybees compared to the health of domestic honeybees and there's some very significant differences and some real lessons that we can learn from studying wild bees just some common ones that are maybe people wouldn't even think of is the size of the nest cavity is very different in a honeybee colony in a hive compared to a bee tree it's much larger um, and that has implications because the larger the colony the more brood they have. And many of these diseases, especially the mites, they reproduce in the brood. So more brood, more mites. And that's one of the major causes of colony collapses. The mites not only suck the blood for the hemolymph of an adult bee, which is analogous to our blood, but they also transmit a lot of viruses when they do that. Um, and that leads to collapse of the colonies. Another one is swarming. Beekeepers um, st- prevent swarming through a number of mechanisms because they don't want to lose half their bees. But swarming is a normal part of a wild honeybee colony's reproduction. So by suppressing swarming, we may be Im- impacting their genetics. Um, and we also are, it's another way that mites uh, are controlled in wild populations because whenever the queen leaves with half her brood, um, a large portion of mites leave with them and the brood cycle is broken. In other words, the queen is not there to lay eggs and that is where the the mites reproduce in beekeeping situations we space our hives very closely together so there's a lot of um, transfer of bees from hive to hive through robbing which is where bees from a healthy colony go in and steal honey and also diseases from a weaker hive there's bee drift where bees can actually go into the wrong hive because they're so close together we don't have that problem in wild honeybees because Bee trees are not spaced closely together. They're usually about a kilometer apart, actually. And there's a variety of other things that we're learning about wild honeybees that are different from how we manage them in captivity. And I think we could really learn a lot from evaluating you know, what bees do in nature because that's, that's kind of the normal. And one of the things we learn in veterinary school from the very first part of our curriculum is learn the normal first. So before we study disease, we learn what normal tissues look like. And um, I think the same could be applied to honeybee health. Hmm.
2: That's a really good point. Yeah. And it sounds like you're really treating the whole hive and not just like an individual animal, say a cow that has like a infection. Exactly.
0: And so in ecology and and, uh, when you look at the honeybee, it's called a superorganism. For folks who might not understand the idea of a superorganism, I think it's important to think about it in terms of a regular organism so like you and me we're made up of cells but our individual cells cannot by themselves survive the honeybee colony is the same thing the individual honeybees the workers they cannot survive on their own they have no way to reproduce they do all the work they forage they clean the cells they build the comb they take care of the queen the queen lays all the eggs and ensures that the population is strong and the drone uh, goes out and breeds with other With queens to ensure there's good genetic diversity. So if you think of a honeybee colony as a superorganism, just like the cells in your own body, I think that's kind of a good analogy because together it makes an organism and by itself they cannot survive.
2: That makes a lot of sense.
0: This superorganism concept I think is really important to um, understand as a veterinarian because um, it could be um, considered similar to how you um, look at herd health with a a group of dairy cattle, for example, you're looking at the population and not the individual animal. The difference is um, your patient is much smaller and you're generally not um, looking at each individual bee like you would an individual cow. Probably more important than looking at the individual bee is looking at the colony, its food reserves, Um, how healthy the brood is, and you're looking at brood patterns, and you're looking at kind of the bigger picture health of the colony instead of uh, isolating out a single bee.
2: Do you ever test the honey?
0: Um, You can test the honey. There are are a a number of different things that can, uh, like, for example, if you do use antibiotics, most of the antibiotics have a withholding period. In other words, you can't harvest the honey. In fact, you can't even um, treat a colony with... antibiotics while there's honey a honey super or the super is the box that holds the honey while it's on there so they to treat the colony you would remove the honey super treat the colony as recommended and then you would return the honey super there's other things you can test for in honey the spores for foul brood can be found in the honey um, and there are also pesticide residues that can be uh, uh, evaluated by uh, testing the honey So there are ways um, that you can uh, get good information by testing the honey, but there's a lot of other things um, that we would look for as a veterinarian before we would test the honey.
2: Interesting. Considering recent declines in honeybee populations, how do you feel about the future of the honeybee in the U.S.?
0: Um, Well, I'm very optimistic because I know that wild honeybees are doing very well. Dr. Seeley and I recently did a, a survey of uh, the honeybee population, Shindagan Forest, um, state forest here, just outside of Brooktondale. And uh, the, the bee colonies there are doing really well. And, stu- and Dr. Seeley has been studying the, the honeybees in the Arnot Forest for decades, and they're also doing very well. So Dr. Seeley did note that there was a significant decline in honeybees uh, in the early 90s when the varroa mite came in. And the varroa mite is an introduced uh, exotic mite from Asia, When the mite did jump host to the Western honeybee, which is the honeybee that we manage here in North America, it did cause a significant decline of wild honeybees, but they recovered, and they're back to the levels that Dr. Seeley was studying in the 1970s. So I'm very optimistic. And I think the last thing I would say about the honeybee is because it's managed both in small backyard beekeeping operations and also part of commercial operations, um, the honeybee, if not managed... Well, and their health is not managed well could significantly impact um, health of other pollinators, other insects. We know that many of the diseases, including varroa mite, can be transmitted on flowers. Dr. Sealy's uh, recent grad student, uh, David Peck, has a wonderful video of a honeybee landing on a flower and the mite jumping off the flower and then jumping back on another bee. Um, The honeybee is really, has the potential to impact the health of other wild pollinators. So if we don't maintain a high level of health in the honeybee, we could adversely impact these native pollinators that are already in decline. So I think the bee veterinarian and beekeepers, it's incumbent upon us to keep honeybees very healthy. So I think if we maintain a healthy honeybee population, it'll also help us maintain uh, the health of our wild pollinators as well.
2: Well, thank you so much for talking to us today.
0: Thank you. It was, it was fun, and I hope folks learn more about honeybees because it's, uh, it's a really fascinating area of science.
1: Welcome back, listeners, and if you've continued to enjoy our content so far, check out our website at locallysourcedscience.org. Follow us on Instagram at locally.sourcedscience and on Twitter at FLX Radio. Up next, Esther Okusin talks with Dr. Rob Racusso, who studies plant-insect interactions from molecules to ecosystems.
3: This past weekend was a warm, sunny, and pleasant one, and I finally had a chance to get into my garden to do some weeding. Happily, I had a variety of busy insects keeping me company. Perhaps you too were able to celebrate the end of National Pollinator Week by checking out the crawling, flying, and hopping organisms that carry pollen from flower to flower. The insects and birds perform a function that provides them with food in the form of pollen or nectar. And the insects also do a huge favor for many of those flowering plants. The process of pollination makes it possible for flowers of many different types of plants to become fertilized. Part of the fertilized flower forms a fruit that contains seeds. So without pollinators, many plants would not be able to form fruits or make seeds. To learn more about how plants attract those pollinators to come and visit, I spoke to Dr. Robert Raguso, professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Cornell University. He studies floral scent, which is one important component of plant-pollinator interactions. He started off by describing what pollinators do for plants.
4: Pollinators move pollen. in most cases, they don't know they're doing it, and they don't do it intentionally. Uh, so there's so people who study economics or economic models in ecology are very interested in pollinators because flowers are engaged in a kind of marketplace where the pollinators are the clients, and the commodities are nectar and pollen, and sometimes oils. And there's a little bit of a you know mutually beneficial exchange going on. Um, we feed you, you know, you move our pollen around. And, uh, everybody's happy in the end. And that's the way we were taught 30 years ago. Um, and I think there's been a kind of explosion of studies in pollination biology at all levels since I became a scientist that indicate that there's a lot more nuance, um, that, 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 that the, there's a conflict, there's often a conflict of interest and that the pollinators would rather do one-stop shopping, get all their food and move on with their lives and the plants themselves, um, Their fitness could be optimized by having pollinators come for a short while, you know, get pollen on their bodies and then kick them out, send them out into the world and find another plant of the same species to pollinate without drinking all of my nectar. So uh, that's the short answer for what pollinators do for plants.
3: Next, he talked about one of the insects he studies, the hawk moth, and why he decided to study its behavior and the flowers that it visits.
4: So, hawk moths are large insects uh, they vary from the size of a bumblebee to the size of a hummingbird there's about 1400 species of them in the world they have incredible flying ability they can hover like helicopters and they can fly over oceans um, I always I, as, a, as a child I was an insect collector um, typically butterflies but I got interested in hawk moths because I saw them at football stadiums at night I saw them you know uh, visiting flowers in my mother's garden um, and I was really fascinated by their ability to to hover. And much later, when I was a graduate student, I started studying them as pollinators because I was interested in the evolution of flower scent. And I was studying very strongly scented night blooming flowers like jasmine,s and gardenias, and evening primroses. Um, and 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 the reason why I had chosen those plants is that they they smell very strongly. And the technology in the early nineties wasn't so sensitive in terms of being able to collect and analyze floral fragrances. So I kind of chose the the night-blooming kind of jasmine plants um, for logistical purposes to be able to study scent. The pollinators for those plants universally around the world are hawk moths. And because I had a background in, in butterfly and moth biology, I thought, oh, this is great. I know something about them. We can grow them. There are people who study them as model systems for neurobiology and biochemistry, so we could actually have a lab colony of them. It's hard to do that with bees and hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know, we grow moths in the lab year-round. Um, we have to work hard to feed them because <laughs> they get really big. The caterpillar can be up to 10 grams, and as anybody has, has seen the tomato hornworms on their tomato plants in their gardens, you know how big they can get and how quickly they can defoliate a plant. Um, so... But it's worth it for us. They they are capable of some pretty astonishing behaviors. Um, and not only are they very sensitive to odor, as we ended up studying, you know, my lab, my students and I studied for many years, but they also have, you know, exquisite vision. They can see colors under starlight. Uh, they can, you know, they can see blue. Uh, they like blue. Um, it ends up uh, under moonlight conditions. And Uh, Like many, many animals in all pollinators that we know of, they use more than one of their senses to find flowers and to drink nectars.
3: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. We're speaking with Dr. Rob Raguso of the Cornell Department of Neurobiology and Behavior. He is talking about the interactions between hawk moths and the night-flowering plants that they pollinate Raguso then points out why the hawk moth is so wonderful to study in the field and in the lab.
4: My students and I have really enjoyed connecting the dots between their ecology and evolution in the field, their importance as pollinators in moving pollen, in some cases very long distances, you know, up to 20 kilometers in a night, um, and connecting populations that are otherwise uh, separated by sand dunes or railroads or canyons or something, because moths can fly over those. Um mm-hmm. And then, and then bringing them back into the lab and connecting them to everything we know about their nervous systems and their, their senses, uh, and their neurogenetics. What
3: attracts the hawk moth to its preferred flower or flowers?
4: Yeah. So they, when, when the moth comes out of a, a sort of a virgin moth that's never fed on anything before it comes out of its pupa, it dries its wings, it's ready to fly. Um, what we have found is that they're really interested in odors, um, Typically, sweet-smelling odors like Easter lily or jasmine-type odors, chemically they have a signature. Um, what we call monoterpenes, ten-carbon compounds, um, and uh, benzene ring compounds with, um, with 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 alcohols and esters on them. Um, but the the more important thing is they. That's kind of a template for them, almost like um, training wheels on a bike when you're learning when your kid is learning how to how to ride, and um, then what they need, so, so odor is necessary, but not sufficient. They, they're very good at tracking odors. They track the males track the odors of females to find mates. Females track the odors of their host plants to where to lay, to, 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 to lay their eggs. And, uh, both males and females use flower odors to find patches of flowers. What we learned is that when they approach close enough to see the flowers, with, you know, at, at that point, when they see a bright object, whether it's blue or white or yellow, and it has color contrast with a dark background, um, their tongue comes out. They have a long proboscis that they uh, hold, usually coiled up like a watch spring, um, under their lips. But then, when they pull it out, it's three, two to three times the length of their bodies. It's a very, very long drinking, you know, tube like a long straw. And at that point, they slow down. And they approach the bright objects, and they start probing with their tongues at the at the light-dark border.
3: It turns out that hawk moths appear to be attracted by additional substances released by flowers.
4: Since those early studies on odors and vision, we were we were concerned that our our artificial flowers in the lab weren't very lifelike, and the moths knew it. And we started to study what else comes off of flowers, and we, we learned to our surprise that when a evening primrose or a datura flower opens, it's like they're breathing. You know, they they ex in a sense they're exhaling all the carbon dioxide that results from the growth of that flower bud into a flower over a three to ten day period. And the carbon dioxide coming out of the flower doesn't last very long, but it lasts about as long as there's nectar in the flower. So we realized that initially moths respond to patches of white or yellow flowers that smell great, but once they arrive there, not all of those flowers have nectar anymore, especially if another moth has already been there. And yet, the presence of carbon dioxide uh, and the other thing we realized was was a little bit of humidity that when the flower opens and it's got a lot of nectar in the tube, uh, it builds up this sort of local gradient of relative humidity that unless there's a stiff wind, it takes about 45 minutes to dissipate. So, to our Surprise and delight! We learn that moths can perceive and utilize humidity gradients and carbon dioxide gradients in the aperture, in the, in the at the threshold of a flower, to determine in a in a split second whether they should visit that flower or not, even if it's scented and brightly colored. Uh, so, one of my students right now is studying how does the moth perceive relative humidity? How, does it does it perceive it as an odor? Does it perceive it as something novel? How does it connect it to its internal state of being thirsty or being satiated? Uh, how do flowers make humidity? Is it an active thing that they do to advertise, or is it something that only happens because there's nectar in the, in the tube?
3: I then asked Dr. Raguso whether the hawk moth has evolved to seek flowers that release humidity as a mechanism to survive in the desert.
4: You know, if it's a female that's looking for a patch of house plants. And it might use humidity to find that patch. And once it's there, it might switch to other cues to figure out, okay, I'm in the right place, but I want to lay eggs on a datura plant and not on a cactus. How do I do that? And then, and similarly, you know, at the level of a single flower, um, moths, you know, if they're, if they're perceiving humidity with their antennae, which we now know they are, you know, they have a stereo, you know, system, a stereo sensory system where they can tell, and above individual flowers up. Is this one humid? Is that one humid? Um, you know, my tongue is already out, what I do. But certainly in a desert environment, you know, a large flower like a sacred datura, which is as large as, you know, as large as the face of a small child, um, when that thing opens, not only is it a big, bright object with a strong, sweet perfume, but it's also, as we've just measured, you know, putting out an awful lot of humidity, mm-hmm. and a moth would definitely notice that in a desert environment.
3: I then asked Dr. Raguso, why are pollinators so important, and why should people pay attention to them?
4: I would think it's about embracing diversity. That that if we have healthy populations of different kinds of pollinators, then we'll you know we'll 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 be better situated, you know, uh, to to have a resilience in the face of unexpected changes in agricultural systems, in our food security, et cetera. Not all bees are honeybees. Not all pollinators are bees. Um, all pollinators are important to different kinds of plants. And certainly as others have, have been speaking about all week, um, you know, 80% of the plants out there need pollinators of some kind and at least half of our crop plants, you know, new pollinators to make fruits and seeds. So, uh, I would, I would urge uh, my fellow citizens to, um, to embrace the diversity of natural pollinators and to, and to appreciate the ecological services that they provide to us free of charge.
3: So listeners, the next time you are gazing at a pollinator visiting a flowering plant, ask yourself, why is that pollinator so attracted to those flowers? To answer, do some investigating. Plant a pollinator-friendly garden, and sit and watch what happens next. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin.
1: And with that, we've reached the end of today's show. We'd love to bring you more, but there's only so much science that can be squeezed into half an hour. At least, not without breaking the laws of physics. In this week's episode, you heard content from Patricia Waldron and Esther Rakusin. The show was produced by me, Cecil barnett Neves, and music was by Kevin MacLeod and Cece Gianetti. Special thanks to Dr. Robin Radcliffe and Dr. Rob Raguso. If you would like to have your scientific explorations and events featured on the show, feel free to reach out, get in contact with us. And as always, thanks for listening.